Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, I told you we are in the book of Matthew, so uh, go ahead, please, and turn there. Matthew chapter 6. We left off in verse 18, so today we're going to pick up in verse 19 because we're just making our way verse by verse, and we are in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. I've told you before, perhaps the the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, uh, re-preached, I'm told, taught on, is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Jesus here has already done a few things for us. One, he opened up by talking about the heart of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We call that the Beatitudes. These are the attitudes that you should be having. And I pointed out when we looked at that, these aren't sort of motivational talks like, now i got to get out there and go and do it. But these are indicators. What's going on in your walk with the Lord? You know, Is God at work? What's your heart look like? And what's being manifested? And so we spent some time considering that. We then moved into a set of teachings we looked at in which Jesus dealt with the common religious teachings of His day. This is where He said, you've heard that it was said. Instead, I say to you. And so Jesus spent some time kind of unpacking some of the erroneous ideas of what it means to be a follower of God, what the the purpose of the Old Testament was. And we learned that many people in that day, they basically thought that you can live what the Old Testament teaches you to live, and you would be righteous, and God would let you into heaven. And the reality is Jesus shows that the purpose of the Old Testament is to show you that you can't do it, and that you need a Savior. And we spent time looking at that. And then we moved into last week looking at the common religious practices of the day. So the common religious teachings, now the common religious practices and the things that people do and the self-righteousness, so to speak, so that other would take notice of that. And Jesus corrected them for their misunderstanding of those things or at least their misapplication. And today now we come to, as I said, verse 19 in chapter 6. And the remaining verses of chapter 6 we can divide up into two sections. So there's verses 19 to 24 and then there'll be verses 25 to the end of the chapter. And verses 19 to 24, sort of our first section, is going to force us, when we come to the end of this section, it's going to force us to ask this question, what are you living for? What are you living for? So if we took some time, we got out a notepad, and we all jotted down things, what is your life about, and what are you living for? We would all start throwing down different things. So some of us would be, you know, to make a good living, to have, you know, that good job that I've always been striving for, to to be able to provide for my kids, send them off to college so that they can be prepared and that they can do well. Some of us, honestly, some people live for this, and that's fine, I guess, is they live for vacation. I can't wait to kind of make it through to next summer and it'll be, we're going on that big vacation. It's going to be exciting. Some of us live for our retirement. I'm trying to save up, can't wait to graduate, or not graduate, uh, retire, and, and then kind of live the easy life. And you know, So we all have these things that we are living for, and at the end of our study today, We're going to ask that question, what are you living for? Are you living and are you pursuing? Is your life marked by the pursuit of temporal things? Or is it uh, marked by the pursuit of eternal things? What consumes you? What's your passion? What are you willing to give up? And what are you not willing to give up? Those are your passions in life. And that will be the first section. The second section is going to ask this question, what do we allow to grip our heart? What are those things in your life that cause concern? What are those things that bring anxiety? And what should those things be? So those are the things we'll consider in our second section. So let's start off with the first, beginning in verse 19. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as I said, this section is going to look at this question of what are we living for? And specifically what I mean by that is uh, our lives, are they marked by the pursuit of the temporal or the eternal? Look again, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and, and steal. So as a citizen, that's what this chapter is, or this section, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is instructed here you can jot it down, this is what I'm supposed to do or not do, is instructed to not lay up treasures on earth. Now Jesus is not saying you can't have treasures on earth. The reality is, as Americans, we have far more than most people on the planet. And so we have these treasures and other people can look at it. We would look at other people around us and say, I can't believe I don't have a boat. I can't believe I have an extra sports car to take out on the weekends. I can't believe. And we can look and say we don't have very many treasures. The reality is most people in the world would look at us and say, oh my goodness, you have a house, you have a car, you have a couch in your house and a TV and all of these things. And so Jesus is not here condemning the idea of treasures in and of themselves, but what he is dealing with is this idea of laying up treasures. And his point here is that the tendency will be to do so. That's the point in all of these things. When Jesus brings something up, his point in this sermon is your natural inclination is going to be to do this. And so our natural inclination is to lay up treasures here on the earth. Our, our responsibility, I should say, as disciples, as his disciples, has to be to resist that tendency. And he'll go on and he'll give two reasons that are given here as to why we should resist the tendency to make earthly treasures our chief pursuit. So when I talk about laying up treasures here on the earth, what I'm saying, what I'm, I'm equating that to is making it our, uh, our chief tendency, our chief pursuit to pursue after earthly treasures. Two reasons he gives. Number one is because treasures here on this earth, earthly treasures, are insecure. Notice in the verse there he says, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So earthly treasures are temporary. Earthly treasures are fading away, or they have the potential to be taken away. So if the entire meaning and purpose of your life is to pursue a treasure that can be gone in an instant, then you have a very real problem. This hit home for me, and it, it honestly affected me in the way that it, when I came home, it caused me to think through the way I was living my life. It, it hit home for me when we were down in New Orleans. It was one of our trips, I forget, but one of our trips, we went into a particular person's home, and the whole entire house was destroyed. As a matter of fact, it was just a block away from where Kevin Cox lived, the fellow that was speaking there. And you go into this home, and the team of you, and you're in your spacesuits and your masks and everything on, and you, you go into the house, and you take everything that these people had accumulated. And think of your home and all the stuff that you have just accumulated in your house. And you take everything, the precious things and the meaningless things, and you take them and you dump them out on the front lawn. And then eventually the house is completely empty of stuff, and then you begin to tear all the walls down, 
and all of the insulation and all of this and all of that. And all of that stuff you go and you put out on the front lawn. And that's our stuff. That's what we own. All of these things that are precious to us, everything that we run after, we must have, and i got to get this, and I'll sacrifice that so I can have this. All of those things end up on the front lawn of your house, in a sense. They're all temporary. They're passing away. They can be destroyed. They can be taken away. And if your entire meaning and purpose of life is found in those things that you can acquire, well, then that we have a problem. Now, there's, again, nothing intrinsically wrong with earthly treasures, but ultimately, when all is said and done, everything that we own will become worthless to us as we enter into eternity. Even if you do make it to the end of your life, nobody stole your stuff, you didn't have any hurricanes come in and destroy your stuff, there's truth in the silly statement that you can't take it with you. The ancient Egyptians, many of you I'm sure are aware, they depicted the error of this thinking. They believed that you could bring your stuff with you. And so whether you were rich, like a pharaoh or something like that, or you were poor, so the pharaohs with the pyramids, they were their tombs, they would load up everything that they possibly could in there, gold and all sorts of stuff in there. But even the poor people, archaeologists have discovered, you were just a regular old Joe or Sally or whatever, you would be buried and they would include there in your little casket they would put things in there like bowls and utensils and sandals and things like that. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered these things. And the reason why they, the people buried them with some odd things to be buried with, wouldn't you agree? They buried with them with those things is because they believed that those things could go with them into the next life and thus they would be very useful to them. As you walk onto the scene with your bowl and your spoon, where do we eat? You know, you're ready to go. They believed that would be useful to them. And as I said, the wealthy of society, the pharaohs, they buried things like jewelry and great amounts of gold and robes and even weapons they buried. Now what's interesting is this. Those tombs, whether it was of the richest or just of the average, those tombs became the target of either grave robbers or, if time could go on long enough, they became sort of the, the study resource of archaeologists. And the point is simply this, that all of those things that were buried with those folks are still found in those caskets, still found in those tombstones. Because you can't take it with us, or with you. But you can send it ahead of you. And we're going to spend some time looking at it. That's the idea of heavenly treasures. So I mentioned there are two reasons that we need to resist the tendency to make earthly treasures our chief pursuit. Number one is because they're temporary and they're fleeting. Why make your entire life's goal something that could be gone in an instant? The second reason is this, that Jesus gives us as to why we should resist the tendency to make earthly treasures our chief pursuit. It's found in verse 21. He says, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this raises the question, does your heart control how you spend your treasure? Or will how you spend your treasure control the place of your heart? You understand the difference there? Does your heart control how you spend your treasure or does how you spend your treasure control the condition of your heart? And I think the answer is both. Because I believe there's a cyclical nature to these things that your heart will dictate to you what you treasure and what you treasure will quickly gain control of your heart. Somebody has said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what you treasure. That is what's important to you, what you value, what you're seeking after. And where we spend our riches is certainly an indicator of what is going on inside of each of our hearts. 
But at the same time, where we spend our riches has the ability to control our hearts as well. So when the stock market has a bad day, as it has been prone to do of late, I will say, huh, stock market had a bad day. That's very interesting. But when I invest into the stock market and it has a bad day, then suddenly I say, oh, the stock market has had a bad day today or something like that. Recently, the stock market had a good day and the stock that I just sold has gone up. And so now I say, oh, the stock market has had a good day. I didn't share that yet with you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, our treasures. Our treasures can serve as an indicator of our heart, and they also have the ability to control our heart. So we have to be careful with what we're treasuring. So Jesus says this, so he says, Therefore, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Because here's the thing, the Lord wants our heart. If you've been here for our, five, our six studies now of the Sermon on the Mount, that's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord wants to control your heart. He wants control over it. And He knows that where we put our treasure, our heart will follow. I like what John Corson said. He said, giving is not God's way of raising cash. It's His way of raising kids. God does a work in our hearts as He begins to teach us what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. So we put our treasure in heaven and we find soon our heart will also follow. So let me ask you this question. How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Well, first thing you have to do is you have to define treasure. Certainly treasure is our financial resources. And so we ask the question of ourselves, and I ask it of you. Do you give, do you give to the work of the Lord? If, if laying up treasures in heaven is in relation to our financial resources, do you give to the work of the Lord? And specifically, do you give sacrificially to that work? And you say, sure, I throw five bucks each time I come. Every time that bucket goes by, that chicken bucket, love the chicken bucket. Every time that thing goes by, I throw five bucks in there. And you know what, that's great. And there is an example in Scripture where an older woman, she throws in two pennies, essentially. And those two pennies were pretty much all she had. And the Lord commends her for it. Another guy throws in, we'll use the example, five bucks. But that was just a, a meager portion of his resources. And the Lord commends the woman that throws in the two pennies here. Here's the, the point is this. Are you giving sacrificially to the work of the Lord? That's what the Lord is looking into. That is what the Lord is seeing because it's an indicator of your heart. I'll say this to you. If you are spending more each week on coffee than you are in giving, then you should probably reevaluate your giving practices. Now, I hate talking about giving because inevitably people think that I benefit from the giving that people give to the church. I don't get like a percent of your giving. I don't get a cut. Hey, giving's up. Good for you. You know, It doesn't work that way, okay? So I don't benefit. And normally I would just sort of avoid it and say, you know what, Lord, do your work on here. But I'll throw this out of you. Somebody taught me when I was about 19 years old about tithing and about giving sacrificially to the work of the Lord. And I am very grateful that they did because I learned some very valuable lessons. So while my tendency might be to want to avoid talking about money and giving with the congregation, there are some of you, particularly some that are younger in the faith, that'll never get an opportunity to hear it if I don't spend the time talking with you about it as well. Okay, so this is not something I'm comfortable with, but it did good in my heart to learn these things, and it may do good in your heart as well. I I'm sure it'll do good in your heart as well. Do well in your heart. Now, that's money. But our treasure is more than financial resources. Time 
is a treasure. And so I ask these questions. How do you spend your time? What's important to you? What does the way you spend your time indicate about what you truly value? So we talked about this idea of you show me your checkbook, I'll show you what you truly value. You show me your credit card statement, I'll show you what you truly value. You show me your time management calendar and I can show you what you truly value. What, what does the way you spend your time indicate about what you truly value? So here's a question for you. This is like punch in the gut day, okay? Here's a question for you. Did you spend more time this week scrolling through Facebook and or Twitter than you did your Bible? Turn to your neighbor and, and answer that question. Now you don't have to. <laughs> did you spend more time... No, I was kidding. You don't have to ask your neighbor. <laughs> now you say, some of, maybe some of us that are a little bit older, well, I don't go on Facebook or Twitter. Okay. Reading the newspaper skimming through a magazine, what, you, you get the point that I'm trying to make? Do you spend more time scrolling through Facebook or Twitter than you have your Bible? If the answer is, well, yes, I think I have, that's a problem. Now, I'll give you my example with Facebook or Twitter. I don't really know how much time I spend on Facebook or Twitter. Usually my Facebook or Twitter experience is, it's kind of embarrassing, going into the bathroom or something like that. I got three minutes here, you know, kind of thing. Or, you know, I'm lying down on my bed or something and it's a commercial. Let me check Facebook or Twitter. But I, I would suspect if you add all of that up, it's going to accumulate very, very quickly. And you'll look at that and you'll spend, I spent three hours this week on Facebook? And then you go back and you say, well, how much time did I spend with the Lord? Well, there was ten minutes that day and there was three minutes that day and that day I woke up late and there was five minutes that day. And you say, oh my gosh, I only spent an hour in the Bible. You see how quickly it kind of puts it all into perspective? Let's hit the men here a little. Do you spend more time watching football or your favorite TV show than you do serving other people? Well, I don't really have any time. I'm very, very busy. But I did sit and watch six hours of football last Sunday. You know? And you may be busy. And you know, maybe there is no time in the evenings because you have work to do or whatever it may be. But you also have that six hours on Sunday that you could spend serving others. There, that's an indicator of what you're treasuring Regardless of what you say, how you invest your resources indicates what you truly treasure. Emotional investment. Sometimes we say things like, you know what, I just don't have enough brain power to think about those things over there. I just don't have enough heart to give to that particular issue over there because I'm all tied up over in this particular area. So emotional investment is a treasure. Do you truly allow yourself, genuinely allow yourself to be concerned about others, your treasure, and how do you spend it? Do you lay it up for heaven? So what are we saying? Are we saying that you can't have stuff here on the earth? Are we saying you can't have a bank account or a retirement account or you can't invest money in the stock market? I don't think Jesus is saying that. Jesus' point is not, not that you can't possess these things, but you can't let these things possess you. Money and the like, those things can be a wonderful resource but it can also have the potential to control you and to enslave you. There was a study that was done recently in which they asked folks of various financial positions in life. And they asked the question, how much money they thought they would need to achieve the American dream? And the answer that they found was interesting. Whether the person made $25,000 a year or $250,000 a year, the answer was essentially the same, that they 
basically felt they needed roughly twice as much. So as a person with 25,000, it said, you know, if I was rated about 50,000, I think all my bills would get paid and I'd be where I need to be and I'd be content. And then they asked the same question of the person that made 250,000 who felt, if I could just be right around 500,000, I'll have everything I need and my bills will be being paid and I'll be content. And the respondents felt that the, it shows that they felt that the secret to happiness, contentment, achieving the American dream was by acquiring more stuff or bigger stuff or better stuff. But the secret to financial happiness is never more stuff. But rather it's contentment. King Solomon, he said this, he said in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You catch his point, what he's making there? If that's your chief desire, you're never going to have enough of it. You're always going to need a little bit more. You know, it's even sort of a joke or a, a comment. You know, how much is enough? Just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. If you're a lover of money or things, you'll never have enough money or things, and you'll never be satisfied, as Solomon said. So the secret then is learning to be content. The Apostle Paul, he wrote this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Now we might look at that and we might think that they're two separate things, that godliness is here, contentment is here, and it's ideal if you can have both of those things. But I think Paul's point is this, is that the mark of godliness is contentment. There's a contentment with who you are in Christ. There's a contentment with leaving your life in His hands. There's being content in trusting that He loves you and that He cares for you. And if your contentment is based on what you have or what you own, then your contentment is based on the wrong things. As those things can be taken away from you at any particular moment. True contentment, or even lack of contentment, it doesn't come from our circumstances. As Jesus is, I think, pointing out here, it makes... Uh, it, it actually it comes from our position in Christ. There's tremendous peace that comes from that kind of contentment. There's a secret joy that is found when you're living your life for eternity because that's what you were created for. You were created to live your life in relationship with God. And so when you can discover that here on the earth, there's a joy that comes when you're living life for eternity. That's how God created you to be. You, you enter into what some have called sort of that sweet spot where you're just doing what you were meant to be doing. And so I wonder if it could be as simple as the reason why some of us aren't really going anywhere with the Lord. And you have to define that, by the way. Do you, do you sense that you're moving forward? Do you sense that you're growing? Are you closer to the Lord now than you were just a little bit a while ago, six months ago, or a year ago? Could it be that the reason why some of us are not going anywhere with the Lord is because we're not honoring the Lord with our treasures, our giving, our time, our energy, our emotional investment. Could it be that the reason that you still notice the tendency in your heart to be self-consumed or self-focused is simply because you've been teaching your heart to treasure the wrong things? Invest your treasure in the things that bear a difference on eternity and watch God begin to change the condition of your heart. So lay up your treasures in heaven. Now Jesus continues in verse 22. He says, now the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, I do think there's a point here that we can learn about what we allow to enter into, so to speak, the eye gate of our lives, what we look at 
And if we're looking at things that are you know, full of darkness or wickedness or whatever, it's going to have an effect on our hearts and so on. But I don't think that's Jesus' point necessarily. I think that's true, that statement. But I don't think that's His point here in using this analogy. Rather, I think His point is this, is to demonstrate the way in which this will affect that. I think, and if the eye is, lets in light, then the whole body will have light. This affects that. And if the eye can't allow in light, then the whole body will be in darkness. Again, the one is going to directly affect the other. So where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is going to affect that. The one directly affects the other. And the reason, look at verse 24, Jesus says, because you can't serve two masters. You're either going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says you can't serve God or money. Some of your versions say mammon. Essentially, just think money when you hear that word here. You cannot wholeheartedly serve two masters. At some point in time, a choice has to be made to serve one over the other. When push comes to shove, one is inevitably going to take precedence over the other. Now we think we can serve two masters. And again and again in the history of the nation of Israel, they thought they could serve two masters. And you see repeatedly this trend of the, the Israelites where they would begin to worship and serve the other gods. You know the interesting thing about the nation of Israel? They never abandoned Jehovah. They never said, you know what, forget Jehovah. He's not real. We don't worship him. But what they did was they kept Jehovah and they tacked on all of these other false gods. And they worshiped and served all these other false gods. And in doing so, they repeatedly deceived themselves into thinking that God would be okay with that. And God wasn't okay with that. We think that we can serve two masters, but the reality is that we can't. Now, Jesus has addressed what we're living for. Now as we move into the second section of our message, he's going to address what we allow to concern us. And I think perhaps there's an anticipation of someone saying something like this, but, but Lord, if I don't lay up treasures here on earth, how will I be able to provide for myself in the future? And perhaps in anticipation of something like that, notice what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your, father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Now, verse 25 begins, and it says, Do not be anxious about your life. Some of your versions will say, Take no thought. That's unfortunate because it, it gives this impression that we're not to consider or think about what we are to eat or what we are to drink or what clothes we are to wear. I'm very grateful I'm married because I hate cooking 
I hate thinking about cooking. I hate thinking about eating. More often than not, if my wife's not around, I just won't eat. And then she'll be back in a week, and, and you know we'll take care of everything we need then. I just hate giving it any thought. But that's not, and I'm not being biblical. Take no thought about what you're going to eat. That's not Jesus' point here. Jesus isn't declaring that we shouldn't give those things consideration because they require thought. They require attention. They require some effort uh, to acquire. I remember when Hurricane Sandy hit. It was about three years ago this time of year. And Hurricane Sandy hit. And everyone said, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. You better make sure you're ready. And I, my version of getting ready was, you know, put the lawn chairs away in the backyard. But I, I made no effort, no preparation or anything like that. And then we woke up the next morning and our well didn't work. We have well water. And our well didn't work because the electric that ran the well wasn't working either. And, you know, I went outside and there was 11 telephone poles down in front of our neighborhood here. And it became pretty clear we weren't getting electric for quite a while. And the electric was out, I think it was 10 days or so, in our particular house. And so we had some water bottles downstairs. Somewhere we got water bottles downstairs. Well, we had like nine. All right? And so my, wife, my kids and I, they were like, I think one of them was sneaking water bottles and hiding them or whatever. Or whatever. Well, then I began to get worried. Because I didn't know what the rest of the, the town looked like, the rest of the community looked like. And I realized, you know what? I should have been a good dad and gone out and got water, gone out and got this, gone out and got that. But I didn't make any preparations whatsoever thinking, I'm fine. There's a place to be concerned about things like that and to take some thought, some attention, some effort. But Jesus' point is not that we can't have any care for these things, but that we don't have undue care for these things. And that's going to be important. And that's why some of your versions have included the word anxious there, where, or it might even say anxious care. So the idea is don't be consumed, overly consumed with anxiety for those things. Excessive worry, not planning for the future, but excessive worry, crippling anxiety that alters who you are and what you pursue isn't going to do you any good anyway. There's a French philosopher, Michel de Montaigne. Did I say it right, French lady? You spoke, somebody? Somebody said it was pretty good. I faked it there. You guys don't speak French. You all speak Spanish probably. But anyway, he said this. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of them. This thinking that I can't live my life here on the earth with eternity primarily in mind because i got to eat, i got to drink, i gotta, I got to get clothes. You know, there's this idea, I don't know what the future is going to hold, so I better get a few more food or clothes or money in the bank or whatever. You know, I better be safe than sorry. But that sort of thinking is going to rob your heart of the joy that God intended for you. And so Jesus said this, he said, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now, some of us hear that. And the answer is yes, by the way. Life is more than food. Life is more than clothing. But some of us hear that and say, I'm not so sure. I think it is about clothing. I think it is about food. And the reality is, yes, you need food, you need clothing. But does your entire life need to revolve around those things? Well, it shouldn't. And so Jesus continues. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? And the point being, God provides for the birds of the air. Aren't you of more value than the birds? Now, don't misunderstand this. Though the birds of the air, they don't worry, 
That doesn't mean they don't work. They go out, they dig up the worms or whatever it is that they're going to eat, and they eat those things. Jesus' point here is not about, you know what, just sit around your house and the food will miraculously apply. The way God works oftentimes is send you off to work so you get a paycheck and then you go to the grocery store and you have the food in your house here. That's the normal order of things. So his point here is that you don't have to work. His point is that you don't have to worry to the point that it becomes crippling. The point Jesus is making is that the birds, they're not wringing their little feathers or whatever, worried about whether they're going to have enough food for the day. You'll never find a bird popping an antacid or something because of their worries. Each day they find what they need, they get through for another day. And I can assure you that you are more loved, you are more cared about than the birds of the air. And by the way, as Jesus points out, what's your worrying going to do anyway? Look at verse 27. He says, can anyone add a single hour to his lifespan? There was a 2014 study. It was, a, a, it was eventually published in a book. It's called The End of Stress. And it gave some empirical data to the common expression. Ever hear the expression, 90% of the things we worry about never happen anyway? Well, this gave some empirical data to that. It actually uh, concluded that 85% of the things that we worry about never happen anyway. Interestingly, of the 15% of things that did happen, 79% of those respondents said that the occurrences weren't as bad as they feared anyway. Okay, so that means this. That means that 97% of the things that we worry about are nothing more than the imaginations of our, of our minds. What is your undue anxiety going to do anyway? Nothing but rob you of peace. That's what it does. It robs you of peace. Jesus gives us a second example. Verse 28, he said, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you, of little faith? God cares for even the grass and the flowers, surely. You are of more concern to him than flowers and grass, which end of the season is picked up, end of the week, whatever it may be, and thrown into the fire. So then, with all of that being said, since you're more value than those things, look at verse 31. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Jesus says there that the, the Gentiles seek after these things. Well, remember, the Gentiles are those that don't know God. He says the Gentiles are those that chase after the... And no wonder they chase after those things. They don't have a relationship with God. They don't have a relationship with the one that they can trust, the one that they know cares for them. It's interesting, the word there that is the word seek... It's a word which means to demand or clamor after. My son Luke and I, we watched rugby yesterday. I have no idea how the game is played. I'm sure you, my friends could tell me here. But I, I'm watching the game for like 30 minutes because I was determined I'm going to figure out this game. I have no idea how the game is played. All I know is they beat each other up and then they stop and give the ball to the guy and then they beat each other up again. And, and I just don't get it. And then they kick it. They kick it somewhere or whatever. And so it didn't make any sense for me. But the way they sought after that ball, this little sort of round, it's not even round, 
this ball. It's this weird, I guess a football is weird too. But anyhow, the way they sought after this ball, fought after this ball, that's that word seek. It means to demand or clamor after or do whatever it takes to get it. The idea is to pursue with determination to acquire. And so again, no wonder the Gentile chased after all these things because they don't know God. And they don't know that God is good. And they don't know that God loves them and that God cares for them. And they haven't come to experience that God, they can trust God. But you do, right? If you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that's who he's speaking to, they know that they can trust God. We know that God is good. We know that God loves us. And Jesus is saying essentially, live in such a way that demonstrates that you know those things. And so instead of seeking after earthly treasures in such a way that nothing else matters, Jesus says in, in the verse there, I guess it's verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That must be the first and the foremost of our priorities. Now, don't under, misunderstand that though. The point is not make heaven your first priority and then everything else second, third, and fourth priority. That is, you know, you go to church on Sunday, first day of the week, go to church on Sunday, and then you go to the bar and the club and, and the other places the other days here. If you're seeking first the kingdom of God, that's going to infect all the other areas of your life as well. So the idea then is this, run hard after God. Fix your eyes on Him. Seek His will. Commit yourself to doing His way. Do that, and you will see that God's going to provide your food and your shelter and your clothing. Run hard after Him, and He'll bring that mate if that's His will for your life. Commit yourself to Him and His ways. He'll give you the desire of your heart as it pertains to that job or that ministry or that initiative. Seek first His kingdom. And all these other things, they begin to sort themselves out. And so with that in mind, Jesus says in verse 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, some of you hear that and you say, but Greg, you don't understand. I'm a worrier. I'm a worrier. My response to you is, no, no, you were a worrier. You see, you were a worrier. Now you're a disciple of Jesus. Now you're to seek first His kingdom. Now, as Peter says in 1 Peter, he says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. You see, in your old life, you can hold on to all that worry and all that you know, anxiety or whatever. That's what the Gentiles do. But now you're a disciple of Jesus. And you're instructed to cast all your cares on Him. Believe me, the cares of this day are enough for you to be occupied with. You don't have to borrow concerns from the future to occupy your thoughts and your energy uh, today as well. So then, okay, I was a worrier, Greg. But truth be told, it still comes back a lot. And I, I am a worrier. So what do you do then when worry grips you? What do you do when worry grips you? I think Paul addresses this. He says this. He says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, so, Greg, what do I do when worry grips me? Well, don't be, don't be worried. Thanks a lot. That really helps me. You know, that doesn't help me at all here. All right, so he says, don't be anxious about everything. And he tells you now what to do. And he says this, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Well, I can't pray. I got, I'm worried. 
I have all these things I have to worry about. We might even say to ourselves, hey, when I'm done with what's causing my worry, then I'll pray. And I would say, no, you need to reverse it all together. You need to fight, if you will, the worry and the anxiety and start praying. And bring your requests to the Lord and make your supplication known to Him and your petitions known to Him and leave it with Him. And then when you get up and you walk away and it comes back, you say, what am I? No, no you stay there in that, my little prayer room over there and you leave it there with Him. And if you have to do it 50 times, then you do it 50 times. But you le let it be your request known to the Lord. And then he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds uh, in Christ Jesus. There's a spelling error there. It's your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. You've probably heard of people, this experience, people will come up to them and it's, I can't believe, like, you're just all together. You know, this, all these things are falling apart in your life and yet you just seem okay, you seem calm. And you know the answer to that is, you know, I, I gave it to the Lord and the Lord has just given me strength in this. That's not something that a lot of people can do, those that are outside of Christ. And many that are of us that are in Christ, we don't do that. And so we pray. We bring it to the Lord. And as I quoted earlier, we cast all of our cares upon Him. We say, all right, this is my burden, Lord. Now you carry my burden. I keep picturing uh, Pilgrim's Progress, if you've read that work. Second, we present our supplications. And to echo Jesus' words from last year or last week, we say, give us this day our daily bread. Third, we give thanks. We give thanks for those things that we do have. We give thanks for God's wisdom in keeping from us those things that we shouldn't have. We do that. We pray. We present our supplications. We give thanks. And if we do that, the promise of Scripture is this, that the peace of God, which doesn't make sense, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In the midst of all the different, different emotions and all the different fears that we have about our finances, we can remind ourselves of this, that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And so instead of allowing ourselves to be consumed by our finances, we can instead set our hearts on knowing Him and being a part of His kingdom. Would you agree with that? That's a hard lesson, believe me. And so those of you that are like dealing with something in particular, I know that it's a hard lesson. I know that they're just words that I'm sharing with you here. But I would encourage you in this, talk to some of the older brothers or sisters in the faith, not so much older in the sense of age, but older in the sense of experience that have learned to do those things in their walk with the Lord. And they'll be able to speak into your life a testimony of the reality of what Jesus is sharing here. Even if you're hearing these words and you're saying, I'm not quite sure I believe those things, bring those things to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, this is what your word says. I'm having trouble believing that this is reality. But I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And the Lord will minister a sense of peace into your life in perhaps a way that you haven't been able to experience before. Amen? So what do you allow your heart uh, to treasure? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these things. And Lord, in so many ways, very practical things. Lord, the temporal has had the ability to just sort of grab a hold of our hearts, in some case, capture our hearts. And I think that's relatively natural because that's what we see. That's what's around us. Lord, that's what our bodies experience. And and feel in our emotions and so on. And so, Lord, we need to teach ourselves to fix our eyes on heaven. Lord, when we don't feel like it, Lord, we need to give. Lord, when we don't have the energy, we need to serve. 
Lord, when our heart is twisted in so many other areas, Lord, we need to invest our heart into caring about others, Lord. And as we do those things, Lord, I'm convinced by Your Word that our hearts will follow after. Father, we, uh, it's just so hard to believe that we live in perhaps the wealthiest nation that has ever existed on earth. And yet, Lord, the stress of finances is so great upon us. And Father, uh, I'm just convinced it doesn't have to be. And so, Lord, teach us to trust You in a greater way. Well, I just thank You for that quote by Corson about not trying to, to raise money, but to raise kids, Lord. And just the way that You work, Lord, when we, we allow our heart to be fixed on heaven. Just the good things that You do in us. So, Lord, teach us Your ways, we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.